Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, where the Holy Spirit will lead us to a new subject in this 13th chapter as we leave the submission to civil authority behind. We come to the second lesson of the chapter. This verse, verse 8 of Romans 13, introduces the second section and lesson of chapter 13, which is neighborly love and loving your neighbors. And the third section begins at verse 11, which is holy living in light of eternity and the great dispensation of the gospel that we are in. Let me read to you these 8 through 10 verses of Romans 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Amen and amen. amen. Owe no man anything. Romans 13 follows Romans 12, and Romans 12 began with verses 1 and 2, giving us the apostolic mandate from our beloved brother Paul that we should, by the mercies of God, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. That we ought not to be conformed to the world, we shouldn't look like them, we should be transformed with the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is how the practical section of Romans is introduced to us, and we want to keep that in mind as we come to each new lesson. The first seven verses of Romans 13 were obedience to civil government, and that is part of the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The next lesson here in verses 8 through 10 is neighborly love, and that is also part of the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Instead of feeling that we have territory and that we have rights and that we have feelings that ought to be defended against others, we as Christians love others. And we are willing to trample and have them trample on our feelings, our territory, and so forth in the minor matters of life that offend so many. And so we have these three verses here. It's important for us to remember that what we have just come out of in the first seven verses is obedience to civil government. And there were debts there. There were debts in verse 7. Because it says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues. Those are things that we owed to civil rulers, and it mentions four of them. Tribute, to whom tribute is due. We owe tribute to those that should get that form of taxation. We owe custom, to whom custom is due, that gets that form of taxation. And we owe fear, to whom fear is due. And we owe honor, to whom honor is due. So with those debts and obligations to our superiors, our civil rulers, we come to the 8th verse, and it says, Owe no man anything. Hmm. 
There are things that we owe our civil rulers, and there are things that we may owe those that we work with, those that we live with, those that we commerce with in business, those that are all around us. We want to pay all of our obligations toward them. And so the apostle transitions from our civil rulers to everyone that we meet in life, all our neighbors, everyone that God puts in our path, we want to pay all our obligations toward them so that we owe no man anything. The only thing we want to owe others is to love one another. And we'll never be, we'll never get it paid off. It's always going to be owing. And as long as we're in this world, we want to be paying the debt of love that we owe to all those around us. The Lord keeps on paying to uh, the whole world. He sends His sunshine, His rain on the evil and the good. He sends fruitful seasons, filling their hearts with food and gladness. And we want to be like our Father in heaven. And so we owe no man anything. Let's first of all consider this from the fact that I want you to pay all your obligations to everyone that you might owe something. Because that is the word of the Lord to us this morning as we get started in this second lesson of Romans chapter 13. Other obligations do arise in the course of life in which you owe someone something. You have made a commitment to them that you're going to be at a certain place at a certain time. You have borrowed something from them that you have said you're going to repay at a certain time. You have made a commitment that because they did this or that for you, you are going to do this or that for them. And so you, we, we incur obligations in our lives, and the Bible wants us to pay all of them. We don't just want to feel obligated to civil rulers because they have a sword. We want to be obligated to everyone else that doesn't carry a sword. Those that are our equals or barely our superiors in the workplace or even our inferiors. We don't want to have any obligations outstanding. We want to pay off everything that we owe them. We should owe no man anything. We should be free. We should be liquid. We should be independent of having obligations. Just as much as we owe what is due in verse 7, we want to pay what is due in verse 8. Rents, fees, and other contractual terms or arrangements should be kept with all fidelity. And I want to commend in this assembly every disciplined and prudent man that keeps all of his financial and other obligations. You are an honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I commend you, and I hope that you will continue in that course. Our credit scores should be very, very high as Christians because we always pay on time, and we always fulfill our obligations whether they be attached to a credit score or not. The kind of debt that's being considered here is one that causes harm or ill to our neighbor because it tells us this in verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. And so by looking at all three verses together, we know that what we owe others in verse 8 are things that are causing them harm because we're not keeping our word or we're not returning something that they need at the appropriate hour or day. We want to be free. We want to be free from having those out there knowing that we don't pay on time. We don't keep our word on time. We're not punctual. We're not respectful of their rights, their property rights. We're not respectful of our word. We don't keep it. We want that to be true of everyone in this assembly. There was great emphasis, and I laid that great emphasis 
on being subordinate to our civil rulers in verses 1 through 7. But this is everyone else that we meet. If you've made a commitment to do something for your employer, for your neighbor, for an extended family member, for someone that else in the neighborhood, for the homeowners association in your subdivision, whatever you've made a commitment to do, we want to fulfill all those obligations. We don't want anything outstanding. And so there's a transition here that since we give what is due to those in authority, we want to give what is due to those that are not in authority as well. God's ordinance of civil government requires full compliance with rulers. And God's second commandment of thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself requires benevolent treatment of all men, whether they're our superiors, our equals, or our inferiors. Owe no man anything. Christians should have a strong work ethic so that they're not in debt, so that they're not owing. And the Bible has taught this already in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 when it says not slothful in business. So one way in which we don't owe others is to have a strong work ethic to serve their needs. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and what it says there about our professional performance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is how we have a life that is not conformed to the world, but is transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. That ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. You know, without taking a lot of time and getting distracted from Romans 13, I hope that you can see here, this is a commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we study. This is an effort to be quiet not to have an, a restless, noisy, hectic life, but a quiet life, a peaceable life, a peaceful life. And you've got to study to accomplish this, to find yourself a profession and to stick with that profession and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. These are apostolic commandments. And the purpose is this, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without. The rest of the world that is not saved can look at us who are saved and have taken the name of Christ, and we are very honest citizens. Not just because we pay to our civil rulers and we respect our civil rulers, but we deal fairly with all men of every level. And that ye may have lack of nothing. The Bible's very plain and very simple. The reason we work hard and the reason we work quietly and the reason that we study to have our own business and to work with our own hands is that we'll have lack of nothing. We'll have enough for everything that we need so that we don't get ourselves into debt where then we can't pay our obligations on time and we violate Romans 13 and verse 8. More references could be added to that, but we'll just move on. Christians should be frugal. They should be economical and they should save for their needs that are going to arise and they should be saving for others. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him work with his hands the thing that is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Christians not only stay out of debts that are due and owing, they also cover all their needs, including 
unseen needs. Every wise man saves money for those things that he cannot forecast, those surprises that are going to happen in every life so that he can cover them and that he can give to others. Now that surplus meaning you can easily pay all your debts on time and all your financial obligations and contracts so that you owe no man anything. Because we're, we have a strong work ethic as Christians and we're frugal and economical and we save. The book of Proverbs twice in chapter 6 and chapter 30 teaches us by the ant that we should save part of all revenue. Only fools spend all they take in. You say, well, I need everything I take in. No, you don't. You can always cut expenses, especially in America. You can always cut expenses. And so the ant does that, and the Lord commends the ant, and Solomon commends the ant. Christians should also teach these fundamental rules of godliness to our children, that they work hard and that they save. As Solomon taught his son in Proverbs chapter 6 when he warned his son about shortyship, he warned his son about sleeping too much, he warned his son about having an independent work ethic, he warned his son to save, like the ant, all in 11 verses, opening up Proverbs chapter 6. We want to teach that to our children. Christians should have a spiritual and eternal purpose so that they avoid worldly excess. You know, if you have an eternal perspective for your life, you're not going to get so wrapped up in the things of this life that you buy more than you can afford. That you get yourself into situations where you cannot pay your obligations on time. Christians should despise all the vices, like gambling, that cause men to incur unnecessary debts. A lot of people get themselves into trouble with these hobbies and these habits and these vices that take from them money that they weren't planning on losing because, of course, every gambler enters the casino planning to come out a winner. But he's guaranteed to be a loser. That's the nature of the vice. Christians should crave to have an honest name before all men by making their payments and keeping their promises on time. And let this settle into our hearts and our minds as a commitment that we are going to keep. Oh, no man, anything. Great emphasis was placed in the first seven verses on not owing the government. Now it's not owing anyone, except to love them. So financially, we want to keep all of our commitments. Verbally, we want to keep all of our promises. Whatever is expected of us, whatever we have agreed to perform, we always want to perform it so that those outside that are not with us here in this church will look at us and know that we're honest and we keep our commitments. Oh, no, man, anything. Now, this is not an economic section of Scripture condemning financial contracts or mortgage loans. I've heard it used that way. I've never believed that about Romans 13.8. A mortgage loan, if you are making your payment on time, you owe nothing. Someone else has the deed to your house. You owe nothing until the next month. Now, I may differ with this on some, but I couldn't care less if I differ with them all. I understand that Romans 13 is not talking about financial obligations and contracts and loan payments. It's talking about love so that the world does not look at us and see that we don't keep our payments. If you make your mortgage payments on time, you don't owe anything. You are current with the mortgagor, and the mortgagor has the deed to your house. 
Nothing is owing because he has more than sufficient to cover what is left on the contract and he doesn't expect you to pay ahead of time. In fact, he made the terms of the mortgage. He does not want you to pay ahead of time. I have worked in a bank on the other side of these transactions and one of the pains of having mortgage loans is early payments and prepayments because it distorts the cash flow that was expected when the loan was made. I hope you can follow that. It's not worth talking about it even one more second. For those fearful of loans by this text, any contract with financial terms is very similar to a loan if you will just stop and think about it. Renting an apartment is the same as making a mortgage loan. You have committed to a string of payments that you must make. And if you miss a payment and do not perform up to expectations, the entire contract can be made due and owing right then. That's true in an apartment contract, and that is true in a mortgage. doesn't make any difference. As long as you're making your payment on time, you don't owe whether it's a mortgage or you're renting an apartment. The key is, as a Christian, we never want to be late on a payment. And it's not just good business sense. It's our religion. Owe no man anything. We want to fulfill all of our obligations, financial and of all other kinds, on time. When debt payments are made on time, nothing is truly owed, as I have tried to state. If all obligations, all financial obligations are prohibited here, or any other kind of obligations, then apprenticeships, school, or training with agreements for future service would all be prohibited though all the parties to such contracts greatly benefit by the extended terms. If your company gives you two years of training and they ask you to work for two more years, do you owe them? You owe them two more years. At any point in time, are you not paying your obligations? You can't pay the obligation of a two-year commitment in one day. As long as you fulfill that two years, there is nothing due and owing, and they're happy with you. And since you're a Christian, and you're outworking everyone else on the job, they are incredibly happy with you. You know, if it is assumed in your place of business that you will give a two-week notice, then you ought to give a three. Because you are not going to owe anything. You are not going to leave them high and dry by quitting a job without giving sufficient notice to your employer. You're going to owe no man anything. And we want to think about this in all aspects of our life. Now, this is the Holy Spirit when He writes Scripture. The lesson of verses 8 through 10 is neighborly love. The lesson of 1 through 7 is what we owe the civil government. But there's this little transitional phrase, owe no man anything, and then He moves on into love. It's I love the Bible. I love how the Lord transitions from one lesson to another. And, and you know, we're looking way up at the king who's got the sword. The IRS is in the streets and, you know, they've got drones and tanks. And so we can, for wrath's sake, pay all of our debts to the government. But where there isn't wrath, where they can't come with a drone or a tank against us, and they don't bear the sword at all, we still owe. We still should pay all men their dues on time. I don't want to spend any more time on this. You know, we want as Christians to have our debts, our credit score, our ability to cover all our needs, our ability to absorb negative events in our lives, and our ability to help others. It all reflects on our reputation, if we're Christians or not. 
We have a good credit score. We pay all of our payments on time. We can cover all our needs. We can cover unseen needs. And if if you know that an unseen need could pop up that's going to be too big for you to cover, in America we're blessed with a thing that covers it very easily and very cheaply. And it's called insurance. We can cover everything so that we never owe anyone. Owe no man anything. This is part of the good and perfect and acceptable will of God that we had in chapter 12. Remember, God doesn't require vows. But God does require you paying whenever you vow. God doesn't require you borrowing money, but if you borrow money, you better pay what you borrow, and you better pay it on time and according to all of its terms. I want to commend, like I've said, everybody in this church that's very disciplined and prudent in these matters and are well known for it. Let me just throw out one little thing that I've said before. Do you use the grace do you use the grace period on your payments? You're violating Romans 13:8. The grace period is after when your payment is due. So if you pass when your payment is due, you owe man something. It's only called grace because you're committing a crime, but they're not going to throw you in jail for 10 days. That's why it's called grace. As Christians, we don't need grace in our lives for making our payments. We should make our payments on time. You say, well, I'm being economically and financially prudent by using my cash flow for an extra 10, 15, or 30 days, depending upon which vendor I'm paying late. You think you can get ahead that way? I'll show you a man that pays before the end of the month, before it's due, that's going to get ahead a lot faster than you're ever going to get ahead. That isn't good cash management. That's just wickedness. Good cash management is paying when God expects you to pay. And that's when it's due. And if it's due on the first of the month, but they say it's the tenth of the month, you ought to be thinking more about the first of the month than the tenth of the month, and it should never cross your mind to pay by the twentieth of the month, which is ten days of grace after they said it was due when it was really due on the first. In certain contracts. Just to, I want to go on. I've said all that before. I just want you to consider that Romans 13.8 says, Owe no man anything. Whether we give our word or whether it's expected of us, whether it's with our employer, when we're going to be there, we always keep our obligations, whether it's in word, deed, employment, or financial arrangements. Lord, help us to this end. You know, God considers debtors to be tails in the Bible and creditors to be heads. And he said that his children should be the head and not the tail. The borrower is servant to the lender, and you can't get around that. Every time you borrow money, you are the tail, you're the servant, and the head or the lender gets to call the shots. Now, if you're paying your contracts on time, he's happy with you, and you're happy with him. But let's remember that we ought to be as free as we can be for the Lord's sake. But especially if we have a contractual term to pay something, we pay on time. Owe no man anything. But, but, so there is something we owe. And there's something we want to always be owing. And there's something we always want to be paying. We want to feel and know that there is a sense of obligation and there is an actual debt and burden upon us. And that is to love all other men. It's just a wonderful way to look at things. We don't want to have anything pressing on us. We don't want to have to be worried, how am I going to make this payment? Why in the world did you enter into a contract where you can't make the payment? 
That is foolishness. You should never enter into a contract where you can't make the payment. Well, something came up. That's impossible for a prudent man. You can cover all those. You can have a slush fund in your checking account. You can have a separate checking account. You can have insurance. You can have savings. You can have backup. And the Bible expects you to have all those things. But there is one obligation that we should be have weighing on us all the time, and it's to love everyone. It's to love the person that's driving too slow in front of you. It's to love the person at the fast food window that doesn't that has forgotten that it's fast food. It's for you to love those people at work that you work with. It's to love your neighbor that is encroaching a foot on your property line. It's just to love everyone around you. Your neighbors is what's under consideration right here in this eighth verse. Owe no man anything but to love one another. We have already had brotherly love. Do you remember chapter 12, verse 9? Let love be without dissimulation. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. See, we've already had that back there in uh, the 12th chapter. This is neighborly love because it's, it's explained in different terms. It's not... It's not an affectionate fondness for people. It's not a friendship with people. It is fulfilling the law toward people and never doing anything that is hurtful toward another person. This is the love that is taught here in these three verses. This is the love God has toward His enemies. Most of this world's population is the enemy of God. The Bible says in Psalm 7 and verse 11 that God is angry with the wicked every day. And yet every day, He shows them goodness in sending sunshine and rain and fruitful seasons. And that's how we understand these three verses. We are like Him. It doesn't mean we approve of their lifestyle, but when we meet every one of these people, individual at a time, one person at a time, we love them by fulfilling the law toward them, never showing them any ill treatment, as verse 10 describes it. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. So we always do what is benevolent and good and in His best interest. And what a world it would be if everyone did that. And what kind of Christians would it be if we cannot be faulted because we love everyone we meet in this sense. We never do harm to anyone. And we are on the lookout for everyone that we come in contact with to love one another. This is not a command for fondness or friendship. This is a command to do harm to no one. It's benevolent kindness to treat men with goodwill for their benefit, their happiness, and their protection, because that's what's described in these three verses. Owe no man anything but to love one another. We owe everyone we meet love. Every person we meet, everyone in the road in front of you, How do you know that that person in front of you that is irritating you by driving slowly and appearing to be distracted has not just had some horrible event in their life? And I really don't need to make an explanation for their behavior at all. We should love everyone we meet. I can promise you, you have never met a person in your life in any situation or circumstances, and you never will, that God has not purposefully predestined for you from the foundation of the world. Lord, help me to remember what I preach. I'm as impatient as anyone in here. 
And I mean what I just said to the Lord with all my heart. These verses are very plain, and I love these verses as much as any other verse. And I was very intense about the first seven, and I want to be intense about these three. Owe no man anything but to love one another. I'm looking forward, and I hope that I'll remember this passage, I'm looking forward to someone that I can love today. You know, we're not talking about our friends, and we're not talking about those that salute you. Jesus cut all those out. If you salute those that salute you, sinners and publicans do the same. If you love those that love you, sinners and publicans do the same. We need to love those that don't love us back. We need to love those that mistreat us. We need to love those that don't care. We need to love those that don't reciprocate, as our brother prayed earlier this morning. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. We want to please God. We look in the Bible and we start reading in January 1st in the lives of most. You start reading in Genesis and you get to Exodus. And in Exodus you start running into the commandments of God that make up the law of God that has some 700 commandments. And you just practically throw up your hands. How can I keep so many commandments toward everyone? Love your neighbor as yourself. You will keep all the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Moses taught it, Jesus confirmed it, and here Paul is confirming it again. This love is benevolent kindness so that you are always thinking for their good, their benefit, their blessing, and their protection in every component part of their lives. And if you are thinking about their good, you are not going to cut people off on the road, you are not going to blast your horn to irritate them unless absolutely necessary for their safety. You're going to always be thinking for their good. And that's the keeping of the law. And it's such a wonderful way of summarizing it. And the Apostle Paul is going to use inductive reasoning in verse 9 to show us that in one short, simple little saying, it comprehends the whole gigantic law of Moses. It's wonderful. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And now he's going to back into it to show it to you from a different perspective in verse 9. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the apostle starts in the second table of the law, the law, the Ten Commandments. There's Ten Commandments. The first four deal with how you relate to God. No images, don't use his name in vain, Sabbath day and so forth. It deals with God. The second table of the law are six commandments, beginning with the fifth, which is honoring parents, which is left out of this place here because it's not truly your neighbor. And so that commandment is out, and the last five are here, and the Holy Spirit has taken commandment number seven and put it first, and taken commandment number six and made it second by reversing those two. And we can say, why is it reversed? And I'll tell you this, that the order of many things in Scripture doesn't matter. But if you want an explanation, adultery was more popular among the Romans, and adultery is more popular in America than is killing. So he went right after us. He went right for our throats. Right. And I'll show you how powerful this passage is in just a second. I want to read through nine. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, are there any other commandments? Somewhere around 700. It is briefly, you know what briefly means? This is a short sentence. 
It is briefly comprehended. It is all wrapped up in this little expression, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, that's wonderful. Lord's religion is so simple. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's all we got to know. There's those two things. So let's think about it here by this inductive reasoning. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's all wrapped up in loving your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you would never think of seducing your neighbor's spouse for sex. If you love your neighbor, think about it. The the apostles backing us into it that the fulfilling of the law is by loving your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you would never think about taking your neighbor's spouse away from him for sexual pleasure for yourself. If you love a neighbor, you would never think of stealing his daughter's virginity and humbling a man's daughter by taking away her virginity. You've stolen from a man. You've stolen from your neighbor. You've stolen from his daughter. You've reduced her value. You would never do that because love is never hurting anyone. Love is always helping them. Love is always protecting them. Love is always benefiting them. Love is doing to them what you would want others to do to you. Godly men, Christians that are doing the good and acceptable and perfect will of God will do all they can to promote their neighbor's marriage to their spouse. You will never interfere in another marriage. You will do everything you can to tell the one spouse what a great spouse they have, and vice versa, so that you're always building up your neighbor's marriage, not interfering in it, not driving a wedge in it, not flirting with one of them, but building it up because you love your neighbor. And so when we come to the seventh commandment, we want to make it as big as we can because guess what we're supposed to fulfill in the words, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? These commandments, and if there be any other commandment. Do you follow what I'm doing right now? The the commandments of God are exceeding broad. And I want you to think about how wonderful this lesson is. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he starts off by backing into it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill, steal, bear false witness, and covet. It's all wrapped up in one little expression. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how does that work? Well, I'm going through it right now with the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. A Christian that is fulfilling the perfect and good and acceptable will of God will do all they can to promote their neighbor's sex life with their spouse. They're not going to allow anything. They're not going to do anything that would hurt, interfere, dull, dampen the marriage of those that they interact with. And God's going to set people in front of you by your community where you live by your hobbies, by your job, by your commerce, where you shop. The Lord's just going to bring people in front of you and you want to do everything you can to promote their marriage to the spouse they already have. You don't want to flirt, look, act any in any way that would be toward adultery with your neighbor or his spouse. This hits flirting. A Christian man fulfilling the the mandate of Romans 12, 1 and 2 isn't going to flirt with his neighbor. He isn't going to flirt with his neighbor's spouse. It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman doing this. You're not going to flirt. This It hits flirting. It hits filthiness. Telling jokes. Off-colored, foolish, sexual jokes. Texting and, sex, and sexting. 
and using texting to say things that you otherwise wouldn't say or shouldn't say, or that if you said it out loud in front of others, they would condemn it. All these things are condemned. Having a Facebook page that is not pure and godly and holy and righteous. All these different witty inventions that we have in our society that allow us to communicate with others should be done with the greatest of purity, for even the thought of foolishness is sin. Proverbs 24 and verse 9. We don't even want to talk about it. We don't even want to imply it. We don't even want to use innuendos. We don't want to tell jokes about sex. We want Sex should be promoted with that neighbor's spouse. And you want to build it up that way. A woman is going to wear modest clothing. She's going to avoid flirting with men. She's going to have a shamed face and a modest look because she doesn't even want to tend in the direction of leading her neighbor into adultery. You say, is all that in the first clause of verse 9 of Romans 13 and more? Because woman, when you don't wear enough clothes and your clothes are too tight and your clothes show too much of your form, you are messing around with every man that has to see you. You are messing around with every woman that has to see you. She's jealous and offended and irritated because you won't wear loose enough clothing to keep her husband safe. And husbands are messed up because they've seen something else. They've seen the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's appealing to their eyes. So you should be very careful. And you should hate the thought that you are running into the teeth of Romans 13.9 by leading toward adultery. Well, it's his fault. No, it isn't. It's your fault. You know, women want to blame the dirty men, the dirty minds of men because they have lustful thoughts when a woman doesn't wear sufficient clothing. No, it's your fault. It doesn't matter what our society is doing. Our society is blatant about it. And because you as a Christian woman modify society's standards a little, but you don't go as far as you could or you should, you're guilty. The man's also guilty. He needs to rule his thoughts, but you've made it very difficult for him. Romans 13.9, Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you're trying to fulfill the statement of loving another and fulfilling the law, and loving your neighbor as yourself, as these three verses describe, then you're not going to want to do any of those things. You're going to want to be for the benefit and the blessing and the protection of your neighbor. And how does a woman benefit and bless and protect her neighbor? By dressing very modestly, acting very modestly, having a shamefaced look, not flirting, so forth and so on. This is the Word of God to us today. We don't owe a man anything, but we owe them lots of things, don't we? We don't owe them because we pay all of our financial payments and we meet our contractual terms on time, but we're very protective of them. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you love your neighbor, you don't want to do him any harm, cause him any tempt, man or woman. If I use a, if I use a male pronoun, I'm referring to both sexes here. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You're going to do everything in your power to keep him from adultery, you from adultery. You're going to want to build up his marriage. You're going to want to build up the sexual relationship he has with his spouse. You're going to want to protect the virginity of his daughter. You're going to want to protect the purity of his sons. All of this is wrapped up in loving your neighbor as yourself. It's powerful. It's all comprehended. This great big giant list of commandments in God's Word is wrapped up briefly in the words... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It says, Thou shalt not kill. 
That's your neighbor's life. If you love your neighbor, you would never think of taking his life or even of harming his life. If you love your neighbor, you will warn him about anything you see that might endanger his life. You're going to be vigilant about your neighbor and protect him from anything happening to his life. You might see something in his driveway with his vehicle. You might see something about the, the, the gas line to his house. You might see all sorts of, you might see a bare wire hanging down near his house. You're going to be vigilant and careful because you love your neighbor to avoid anything happening to his life. Thou shalt not kill. You will assist, help, or defend your neighbor against those that would try to take his life. You will do everything you can to protect your neighbor, even from accidental death, by warning him if you see him doing something dangerous. Now let me make it very plain about thou shalt not kill. How carefully do you drive? Do you ever drive thinking about Romans 13, 8 through 10? I hope that after today, you will. Thou shalt not kill. How carefully do you drive? How defensively? You have a deadly weapon in your hands every time you are driving. A deadly weapon that can take a life so quickly. I'll tell you, there's a young girl, there's a woman somewhere, you know, that's grieving today. And it's not her fault. But could she have been more careful? Can we be more careful? Thou shalt not kill. If you really love your neighbor, and you, do you know who your neighbor is when you're driving? It's all the people around you. I remember telling my boys as they grew up, my girls needed it too, but not as much. I remember telling the boys, you know, if you're going to drive foolishly and you kill yourself, no problem. The world will be rid of one fool, and I can easily get you in the ground and get a marker over you if I, if I give you one. No problem. But if you go out and kill someone else, we as a family will never be able to undo that. We will have to live with that haunting murder the rest of our lives. There is no forgiveness for it. And I meant every syllable of that. And God knows that I'm guilty in confessing my sins right now. I'm 56 years old and I have driven like Jehu at times in my life. And I want to encourage all of us to drive carefully that we will keep the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Because if we are loving, loving our neighbor as ourself, then we want to be so perfectly safe on the road that they are never threatened by our driving. It's called pushing the edge of the envelope. Do, are all of you that have driven for a few years understand enough that you can push the edge of the envelope by driving at a certain speed in, under certain conditions where the, the ability to control your vehicle and to restrain it from hitting someone else is being reduced? Because if you love your neighbor... You're going to want him to be on the road perfectly safe from you. You don't want the margin of safety between him and your his vehicle and your vehicle declining because you're pressing the edge of the envelope. Thou shalt not steal. If you love your neighbor, you would never think of taking anything that belongs to your neighbor. You'll protect his property rights with all the creativity, faithfulness, and zeal that you can muster. You'll never, you'll never barter a person down unnecessarily. It's the word of God that says, it is not, it is not, saith the buyer, and then he goeth his way and boasteth. If you barter for a used car or some other asset with someone and you come home and brag about the good deal you just got, what does that mean about the seller? Yes, that's exactly right. 
Oh, you wouldn't believe the good deal I just got. Well, what's the word to describe the deal they got? A bad deal. If you come, if you are bartering with somebody about a car, and you say, this is nothing. Look at all these problems. Look at these scratches. Look at these poor tires. Look at the tears in the upholstery. And then they sell it to you to, for a reduced price. And you go home and boast about the great deal you got for arguing them down. It's a sin. It's stealing. And I have said this many times. The people that do that never get ahead. I have watched it. The people in this assembly... And it's true everywhere. The people in this assembly that pay more for a transaction have more. Nickel and diming a person and lying about it and stealing from them is not how you get ahead. You get ahead in God's religion by liberality and fairness and righteousness. If you got a good deal and you mean it, I bought it for less than it's worth, you stole. Pay what it's worth. The Lord's going to bless you for it. Oh, the word of God is exceeding broad. When it deals with these commandments like thou shalt not kill. You'll always give or sell. You'll always give service to a full amount for a price. You'll always sell a full amount for a price. And you'll always pay a full price for things that you buy. You will not purloin in the job. What's purloining in Titus chapter 2? Small thefts. You will not purloin in the job by small thefts of time or small thefts of things belonging to your master. You'll always give a full day's work for a full day's pay. Do you know what would happen? If, do you know what would happen if the average Christian employee got their check on Friday and looked at it and they only got 80% of their pay? What would the average Christian do? It would involve guns. It would involve a four-wheel drive truck through the office window. They'd be furious. It's ridiculous. Why would you be upset if you looked at your check and it was 80% of what you were supposed to get paid? The point I'm trying to make is how many days have you worked for your master and only given him 80% of what he's paying you for? Lord help us. Thou shalt not bear false witness. If you love your neighbor, you would never bear false witness. That is to testify a lie in court against him. It also includes backbiting, slander, tailbearing, tattling, and whispering are all included here. You would not bear false witness against your neighbor. You will stop backbiters from doing their dirty work. If someone is backbiting another person, you're going to get an angry countenance because Proverbs 25, 23 tells us to get angry to shut that person up who's backbiting about another party. Because we want to protect that other party's reputation and name. You'll do everything you can to protect the good name of others. You will enhance a neighbor's reputation without flattering or lying when you have the opportunity. Do you remember David at Saul's death? Was David at Saul's death when he eulogized King Saul, who was, who was a pretty profane and wicked king and who had tried to kill David for about 15 years. Did David praise him? Did David remember every good thing about King Saul and forget every bad thing? That is what we should do. That's not bearing false witness. That's even going further and bearing good witness even to those that hardly deserve it. But that's love. That's love. That's giving to someone else what they don't deserve because you can give it. Thou shalt not covet. If you love your neighbor, 
You would never want or desire to have what he has in order to take it from him. If you love your neighbor, you're glad for what he has. You're glad for what he gets, especially when it's better than what you have. You say you're crazy. No! If you're thankful for what you have and he gets something better, you should be more excited. You say, I don't understand that. Well, that's why we're working through Romans 13, 8 through 10. You should understand that. If you really... Let's think through this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So when he gets something good, you would like to get something good, but since he got something good and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, yeah, it does make sense. I should be excited about him getting something better than I have. You would not even allow the thought of desiring his stuff because it could so easily lead to other sins. You love to be glad for your neighbor and you rejoice at his successes and advancements without any ill feelings. You will do anything you can to protect and preserve his assets without any desire for his loss. Because he's got something better and a storm comes up and washes away half of his backyard when he had a prettier backyard than you and you get a little tiny smile in your heart, oh, the Lord sees that little tiny smile. Because he worked harder and had a better yard than you did, and he may have worked less than you did and had a better yard than you did because he was twice as smart as you about having a yard. And then the Lord washes half of it away, and you get a little smile on your heart. That is wicked. You don't want to covet having taking away his things by any means whatsoever. You will do anything you can to protect and preserve his assets without any desire for his loss. Are you thankful for your neighbor's prettier wife? Are you thankful for your neighbor's bigger house, his finer cars, and his recent promotion? You should be. And if there be any other commandment, if there be any other commandment, it's wrapped up, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Is that simple enough? Love doesn't ever do anything to hurt another person. When someone's going to work in the morning and they're on their cell phone and that really irritates you when you're driving behind somebody on a cell phone and you lay on your horn and scare them, is that doing ill to your neighbor? Just trying to give some common illustrations. That's doing ill to your neighbor. How do you know that they're not being told that their mother was just hit by a car and they're a little distracted? Let's put the best construction on everything that happens around us to these people that we don't know. They're driving around us. They're working around us. They're living around us. We meet them. We, we meet them in the grocery store. We meet them at the fast food window. Even though they're moving slowly. How do, do you know they could be moving slowly because there's something physically wrong with them? There could be something emotionally wrong with them. They may never have been taught that it's a fast food chain. Whatever you need to think about, and don't look at me and look for a smile, let's love our neighbor as ourselves. Look at Leviticus 19 with me. Leviticus 19 to show you, I think this passage helps me best. Though the passage that we just are going through is certainly clear of what kind of love we're talking about. We are talking about love that we would never hurt our neighbor. In sexual matters, in property matters, in life matters, in truth matters, 
and even desiring His assets matters. And any other commandment. We would never hurt Him in those areas. And if we saw Him doing something that was wrong, we would as respectfully and as kindly as we could correct Him because we don't want Him to do anything wrong Himself. That's how much we love our neighbor. Look at Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. Verse 17, Thou shalt not hate thy neighbor, thy brother, in thine heart. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. And when we go to neighbors, you've got to modify this considerably. Because when you're working with people or shopping with people, it is not your place to go correct them like it is your place to go correct a brother that's a member in this church. But if you have an opportunity with a friend that may not be a member of this church or a colleague at work where you can warn them and tell them that they're doing something that is wrong for their benefit and they would accept it and they're not a scorner so that you can reprove them without getting a blot, you should go ahead and do it. And you got to measure the dynamics of every relationship as to whether you can do that or not. But look at these words. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Well, of course we don't want to hate our brothers because we want to have brotherly love. What does Moses mean about not hating my brother? Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now here the word neighbor is used because we're in Israel. And your neighbors are your brothers and your brothers are your neighbors. So we've got to modify this a little bit when you're doing it outside this church. But notice, the point that I want is love and hate is defined here by you saving him from sinning himself. There's us loving our neighbors where we don't want to sin against them. We don't want to do anything to hurt them. But if we really love that person, we don't want them to do anything that's going to hurt themselves. That's going to be sin before God. And so Leviticus 19.17 addresses it. If you don't rebuke your brother and keep your neighbor from sinning in this context, you hate him. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing something wrong, do you want somebody to correct you for it? If you're a godly person at all, if you're not even godly, if you're just wicked and you want to be of good character in the the minds of a wicked man, you still want people to correct you when you're doing something wrong because you want to do what is right. Good men want to do what is right, even if they're not even saved when it comes to their reputation before the world, but especially Christians. And then it goes into verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. See, it's the children of thy people. It's Israel. It's the church. It's in the community and kingdom of God under the Old Testament. But notice these two just going together. And so we come back to Romans 13.10. We don't want... Everything we do toward our neighbor should be for his benefit should be for his peace, should be for his protection. And when we have an opportunity, we even want to help him change something that he's doing that would be for his benefit, blessing, and protection by keeping him back from his sin. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love never does anything negative in thought, word, or gesture, or deed to anyone else in the world that we meet. If you're in a position of authority over a neighbor and you have to do something like report them, or you have to be a judge and condemn them, you will only do what is just and fair before God. Because even if you're in authority and they have done something wrong, it is still your neighbor, and you will not respect the poor, you will not respect the rich, you will not take bribes, you will not be moved, you will only do what is just and fair, because you love your neighbor even if he's a criminal. And you're in a position of authority over him. 
I didn't say let the criminal go free. Did, I, did anybody think I said that? You're just going to do what is just and fair in the sight of God and not go beyond and not come short because that's loving your neighbor. If the neighbor has done something wrong and you are involved and you're being asked to give an account of what took place when your neighbor did something criminal, you're going to only do what is totally just and fair. You're going to tell the truth. You're not going to try to smear them and you're not going to come short because then you're not loving the rest of the neighbors in the neighborhood because you're not telling the full truth about the neighbor that has done something criminal. Does it all make sense? Do you understand that love worketh no ill to his neighbor? Even when you're in a position of strength over weakness, when they've done something wrong, you still only go as far as God's word wants you to go and no further. This love is not fuzzy, warm, romantic feelings that the world calls love, but it's rather kind actions like God shows toward the wicked every day. This is the same love you have towards your enemy by praying for him and doing him good. Who is your neighbor? Whoever the Lord puts in your path. The good Samaritan was on his way down to Samaria, coming up from Jerusalem or some situation like that. It's in Luke 10, 25 through 37. And he finds that wounded Jew. The Lord put that wounded Jew in his path. Now remember, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. There were racial and cultural differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. But the good Samaritan sees the wounded Jew. And even though some of his own countrymen passed him by, a Levite and a priest, because they didn't want to get involved, because they didn't want to be bothered, because they didn't love their neighbor, along comes the good Samaritan, Goes, runs over to that man in the ditch, picks him up, puts him on his ass, takes him to an inn, pays for the inn, and tells the owner of the inn, if he doesn't heal as quickly as we think he's going to, I'll be back to pay you the rest. Jesus told that whole long story to answer this question from a lawyer. Lawyers like to play with words. This lawyer tempted Jesus by saying, who is my neighbor? Because he was trying to limit his neighbor down to his friends, so that he could keep the second commandment more easily. And Jesus didn't have a Jew with a Jew. Jesus had a Samaritan with a Jew. And he was a good Samaritan because he loved even a Jew. Because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention any cultural differences or ethnic people or skin color or anything like that. That Americans who don't know the grace of God can show a cold shoulder toward because we want to love everyone the Lord puts in our path this way. Right. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. How wonderful can it be? This is the lesson of Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is the more excellent way of serving God, is learning to love like this. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Let's fulfill the law this way by only thinking of benevolent kindness toward everyone the Lord puts in our path. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for you and me to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. Amen.